This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. They talked to me about it on the condition that I wouldn't name him. Digging into sensitive topics is not always easy for journalists. And it kind of just started out with me reaching out to a couple different sources to just kind of start gathering data. Surprises come up during the reporting process. This is everything we have. These are the questions that need answered. This is how everything relates. And we mapped it all out. Taking a look inside the reporter's notebook, our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism. Online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. This may sound a bit self-serving, but when it's done well, journalism can be hard work at times. Not manual labor heavy lifting, but there can be frustrations. Following leads that turn out to be dead ends. Encouraging shy people to tell their stories trying to fit the puzzle pieces together. That's especially true when the topic is somewhat sensitive. Extensive reporting projects were conducted this year on health-related topics by two Iowa newspapers. This week, we learn more about the reporting process and the craft of journalism as it relates to those stories. Iowa Watch 2016 summer intern Thomas Nelson sat down with Des Moines Register reporter Tony Lays to discuss a recent article about mental health patients who were stuck in hospitals for months, even after they were cleared for release. What attracted you to this story? Well, I cover health care for the Register and have for quite a while now, and I had heard from staff members at Broadlands that they had a gentleman who'd been in their psych unit at that point for almost a year and that they just were unable to find placement for him and that this was an increasing problem but that this was an extreme example. And and I certainly had written in the past that the psych units in Iowa are always full and that sheriff's deputies and ambulances are just constantly crisscrossing the state with people trying to find an open psych bed. And then to hear that a lot of those psych beds were filled by people who had been cleared to be released, uh, that got me interested. Why is this story important to Iowans? Well, it's it, it, if you have a loved one who has mental illness, it's obviously important because this could happen to them or it could happen to you. Um, it would not be acceptable for any other kind of ailment for a cancer patient or a heart patient to have to get stuck in the hospital for months at a time just because there was no alternative. Uh, and then for the taxpayers, this is an incredibly expensive way to do it. It's No one disputes that it's roughly double as expensive to do it this way as opposed to having them in a community setting. And the taxpayers end up footing that bill one way or the other. There were specific numbers cited in there about $500,000 and over $500,000 for keeping a patient at one time. How difficult was it for you to get those numbers? Well, the limitation in that case of that gentleman was they talked to me about it on the condition that I wouldn't name him, which is unusual. We don't usually grant that because we find it to be more compelling when we have an actual person with a name in their photo that people can relate to. But once I agreed to that, and then I talked to the man's father, who's his guardian, then Broadlands was willing to give me estimates of how much this cost. What kind of legal and medical obstacles did you run into this? Because that was a major, that's a major piece of the story, that you have this gentleman who has a mental illness, and 
he's not able to be named. Were there any other difficulties along that line, along those lines that you ran into while doing this? Well, that was a big one, and, and it was worse in this case than it is. I write about a lot of patients, and they can sign waivers for me, and, and then the providers can talk about it. In this case, there was a legitimate question as to whether he would understand such a document, and which I, I thought was a legitimate question. So that was the biggest hurdle. And then one of the other hurdles is it's a little hard to define who is a person who's ready to leave. So the hospitals would give me sort of back of the envelope uh, estimates of they would say, oh, a quarter of our beds on any given day probably are taken by people who don't really need to be there. But it's not a, there's not a strict definition of who you're talking about. And so that was a challenge. I couldn't get a specific number of how much this is costing the state each year. How big of a deal is mental illness in Iowa? The funding was cut, and there are limited facilities now. What does that what does that mean for Iowans now, and what does that mean for investigative reporters who want to find out what's going on and finding out the deeper meaning behind what's going on with uh, in, in mental illness in Iowa? Well, there's two sides to that story. One is that the there have been very deep cuts over the last 10 or 20 years in the number of beds both in hospitals and in institutional care. In the state mental hospitals, uh, they've closed two of the four and they've cut way back on the number of beds in, in the remaining ones. Also, about half of what they used to call, uh, what they call residential care facilities have closed in this state. And those mainly are what used to be the old county homes. Um, they're closing left and right. And that's a big story. I've written about that too. And I think journalists should, should be paying attention to that. Those folks, a lot of them are being moved into community settings in apartments and private homes that they share with, say, three or four or five other people, and there will be staff in that home, and they go on more outings, and they they cook meals for themselves, and for the most part, most people think that's a very good idea. And it's being driven by federal regulations, uh, Medicaid will no longer pay for a lot of institutional care because they're trying to push states to put people into this more community setting. So for most people, that's a positive thing. And so I don't think when we talk about closing institutions, we should just focus on the negative. There, there is a positive to it. And I've written that story, and I think others should too. The negative comes in that there's still this subset of patients who are so ill and have so many problems that they just can't hack it in that kind of setting. And so then the question becomes what to do with those folks. And that's who we're talking about in this story. Those are the kind of people who are getting stuck in hospitals for months at a time because there's lack of alternatives. Now, there was also mention of, I think, what, I think about 348 people in the article that have been turned down uh, for care in the, it was the Polk County facility. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean for them? And then how also did you find that's that's a very specific number. How did you, how did you go about finding that? And do they keep records of whom they turned down and why? They do. They could give me that because they weren't telling me who those folks were. But yeah, they keep track of that. And um, it you know it's in the hospital's interest to talk about that because they don't want to do that. And so yeah, they gave me that number fairly easily. And it's a public hospital. It's a public record. But I think private hospitals would be willing to do that too. Um, that Broadlands is in the process of expanding their inpatient unit, which is very expensive, and they have to uh, justify that to the taxpayers. The taxpayers own that hospital, and that's part of the way they're doing it. Is 
so that number represents people who needed to get into the hospital on an emergency basis, and there wasn't a bed for them. And so they're, they're often sent hundreds of miles away by sheriff's deputies or by ambulance. Uh, that's very expensive. Um, and a lot of those folks could be cared for here if the beds weren't taken by people who don't need to be there. What kind of follow-ups should be done for this story? What what information is still out there that you think should be more present? A big one on this is uh, there's new companies called managed care organizations who've taken over management of Iowa's Medicaid program. Uh, very controversial. It just started in April. So it's a little too soon to know how that's all going to shake out. Um, state officials who favor that and push it through say that those companies should be able to be uh, more flexible and come up with creative ways to help these people because they're not going to want to pay to keep them in the hospital. Uh, the skeptics doubt that that's going to be much help. They're afraid that these for-profit companies are going to look for every possible alternative to not give these folks much care at all and uh, that they'll end up worse off. So. I'm going to try to keep an eye on and see how that shakes out. At this point, it's too soon to tell. One final question for you. What advice would you give to journalists who are graduating, graduating in 2017, 2016, who are going out? What would you tell them, the prospective investigative journalists, the prospective beat journalists out there, what is the best thing they can do and the best way for them to spend their time to try to be the, give the most quality news to the public? I would say try to start out as a beat reporter, um, but a beat reporter who's willing to investigate things. Um, you know, there's so much going on that you can find out as a school board reporter, as a, a suburban reporter. I mean, I've heard a, a lot of young reporters wind up covering the suburbs to start with, and I've heard some people poo-poo that and say they can't wait to get off that beat. There's so much going on out in the suburbs. That's where all the growth is. There's there's tons to dig into out there. Um, you should have a good attitude about that. If you're a sports reporter, you should be willing to look into it. But I, I absolutely would encourage people to start out as beat reporters. And, and you know, I like being a beat reporter. I, I've been in this business for 28 years now, and I, I have no desire to get off being a beat reporter um, because it's such a fertile ground to find things to look into. Whereas if you have brainstorming sessions, I've always thought brainstorming sessions they have their place, but sometimes they feel like a seance where you're trying to raise a great story idea from the middle of the table. Um, instead, you should be out there talking to people and trying to find out what's going on. Iowa Watch 2016 summer intern Thomas Nelson speaking with Des Moines Register reporter Tony Lays about his article concerning treatment of mental health patients. Coming up, we'll talk with two reporters covering an eastern Iowa drug epidemic. That's next, as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. Support for the Iowa Watch Connection comes from the Iowa Insurance Division's Iowa Fraud Fighters Program. This statewide initiative educates Iowans on how to double-check before they invest and shield their savings from scammers. Thousands of Iowans have attended fraud fighter forums across the state to learn about new scams circulating in their area and how to stay a step ahead of fraudsters. Learn how to fight fraud and why it is important to report scams at iowafraudfighters.gov. 
The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. Earlier this year on this program, we explored the devastation that heroin addiction can cause on Iowa families. It's an important story that many have followed of late. Iowa Watch summer intern Brittany Robb sat down with reporters Lee Hermiston and Chelsea Keenan from the Gazette in Cedar Rapids to talk about a series of stories published during the summer of 2016 titled Heroin's Hold in Iowa. Why this story? Uh, you know, I think it started several months ago with a study from the CDC that looked at, um, I think, both heroin and opioid use or abuse among certain demographics. And we saw that it was rising across the board. And it, it kind of started with a question between Chelsea and I, if, if more women and especially more young women are abusing heroin and opioids, does that mean more children are being born addicted to opiates. And that was kind of, I think, the initial question that we had in the beginning of our reporting. Because obviously, I think heroin pops up on my beat and Ann Lee's beat often, whether it's someone getting arrested for it, um, whether it's the city of Cedar Rapids hiring an officer to focus specifically on heroin, whether it's, you know, a methadone clinic opening in Cedar Rapids. Like, there are a lot of things that have kind of been popping up. The CDC just announced a bunch of guidelines on how physicians should properly prescribe painkillers to try to cut down on this. And so um, it was something we kind of were paying attention to kind of closely. And, um, yeah, and we kind of had that conversation. And it kind of just started out with me reaching out to a couple different sources to just kind of start gathering data. So we talked with the Iowa Hospital Association, I talked with DHS, and we started collecting data, like Lee said, specifically about the number of um, babies born who, or, you know, for who had, I think it's a Noxious influence in their, you know, tested positive for it. And so it kind of really went from there. Um, and I think there was a lot of pre-reporting beforehand without even really knowing what the stories were going to be. So, you know, Lee and I started reaching out to sources, whether they were hospitals or police officers or district attorneys, um, and just started kind of talking to them about a lot of different things that they're seeing with heroin. And we kind of came back and realized we had a lot of stuff, and we had a lot more stuff than just for that original article idea, which was specifically about women and babies. Yeah, the the initial focus was really a, a narrow look women, children, uh, what, what, what happens to a child that is born to an opiate-addicted mother, uh, what is the process, how is DHS involved, how are the foster care system involved, what happens to the mother, and 
in researching that, we discovered that there was going to be a drug-endangered children conference in uh, Des Moines, and our editors were kind enough to let us spend the day there. And that's really when I think we realized there was so much more to this story and that um, drug-endangered children was really just one part of it. We both came away with half a dozen story ideas each, and we sat down with one of our editors, I think maybe a week later, and said, this is everything we have. These are the questions that need answered. This is how everything relates. And we mapped it all out, and that's when it went from being kind of one very specific story to uh, a series of stories which ultimately uh, came of our reporting. And, and we had both done heroin stories last summer, mm-hmm. unrelated to them, but we had had a number of overdose deaths in our area, and I wrote about just the, the high number of overdoses, both fatal and non-fatal, and the impact that fentanyl had been having in, uh, in Iowa, especially eastern Iowa, Johnson County, Lynn County, Black Hawk, Scott and Dubuque counties, all eastern Iowa counties were just getting slammed so much harder than, say, Polk, Woodbury, western Iowa. And then Chelsea, at the same time, what you were writing about... I was about. writing about treatment. So I kind of talked with the hospitals about how they, you know, dealt with overdoses. I talked with ASAC about um, if they'd seen an increase in their residential um, units and with people coming in with heroin addictions. And they had both the hospitals, ER rooms, and ASAC. And that was right around the time the methadone clinic had just opened. Um, so we talked a little bit with the methadone clinic um, about, you know, why they decided to come to Cedar Rapids and... What they've seen since they, I think they've been open for about six months. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we did do uh, a couple stories last summer, but, you know, um, the one thing, though both those stories were missing were the people. We had a lot of the officials talking about um, the problems and the issues, but we were missing the people. And I think that was really what set these set of stories apart that we did this last, this summer, um, was really finding the individuals who are experiencing this and are dealing with it and are trying to overcome it. Yeah, so kind of on that, did you go to Heart of Iowa, and the Cedar Rapids Treatment Center? Um, was that your next step, or how did that kind of progress to get you to those people? Yeah, so, um, you know, Lee and I had no problem finding the data and finding the official sources to talk about how this was a problem. Finding the people to talk about it was a little bit harder. Um, so, um, yeah, I think it was, it was mostly, especially since I was trying to talk about women and children, I reached out specifically to the heart of Iowa because they deal with women and children. And um, I talked with the executive director for quite a while about, you know, the stories and what we were kind of hoping to do. And um, I just said to her, you know, I'm looking for someone who is overcoming either a heroin or an opioid addiction. And if that person would be comfortable with talking with me and sharing their story, you know, I would love to talk to that person. And the Heart of Iowa director said, well, I will go into group and kind of tell them what's going on. And if anybody raises their hand and says they're interested, we'll hook you up. You know, and that and that led me to Abby, who was the, um, uh, the woman who was featured in the first story that kind of kicked off the series. And, you know, she was, she was originally going to be just a part of the third story, which was about women and babies. And 
after sitting with Abby for more than, you know, a few hours and kind of talking to her and hearing her story, it was it became it became very clear very quickly that Abby deserved more time and attention because her story was a very powerful one. As as far as the individuals with the, the that we found through the methadone clinic, that was just, you know, Lee and I both talked with Jackie Scott, who's the director over um, the director over there and she's just She's a helpful, passionate individual who really just wants these people to, you know, overcome these addictions, and she wants to help them do that, and she kind of, you know, she, she knows these people. They come in every day, they talk, they talk, they chat, and I think, you know, she kind of just asked and reached out, and um, we were both kind of looking for specific things. I was, you know, looking for women who were pregnant. Lee was kind of trying to find some, some men to talk to because I was focusing more on the women and children aspect of it, and... Jackie came through in a very big way. Right. I think Jackie and, and everyone else that we spoke with understanding the importance of putting a face on these stories and helping the public understand that heroin abuse is not the um, homeless junkie on the street that's been shooting up for 20 years. That's the old stereotype. The reality now is it's it runs the gamut. It's young men and women, it's mothers, fathers, virtually anyone, it, it cuts across all demographics and that's really what we wanted to show in our reporting and our sources, I believe, understood the importance of that. And like Chelsea said, they really came through in finding us people, real people with real stories to tell. Lee Hermiston and Chelsea Keenan are reporters for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. They spoke about their series of stories, Heroines Hold in Iowa, with Iowa Watch summer intern Brittany Robb. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can connect with us online, iowawatch.org. Click on the Iowa Watch Connection tab at the top of the page to listen to all or part of this program again for a list of stations that carry the program and more. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. The Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org.